Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 19th, 2016. On today's show, we'll discuss race and baseball and Adam Jones's claim that there haven't been any Kaepernick-like protests in the game because it's a white man's sport. We'll also examine the hot new fad that's sweeping the nation, football players dropping the ball before they cross the goal line as they cruise in for a touchdown. And we'll be joined by rock climber and wingsuit base jumper Steph Davis, to talk about a recent spate of deaths in base jumping and why she continues to do it despite the fact that her own husband lost his life in a jump. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. I once jumped off of uh, the third step, the bottom of a staircase. <laughs> Remarkable. Without a parachute. And with us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hey, Mike. A lot of times the news of the day is a jumping off point for my podcast, <laughs> The Gist. <laughs> so, Whimsy Watch, 
I, I feel like there are lots of complicated rules about what constitutes whimsy that I don't <laughs> remember because it's the beginning of the whimsy season. But I did like that everyone was comparing Cam Newton to the monorail salesman on The Simpsons because of the straw hat he was wearing. The boater. Also, the Rams. Lyle Langley? Lyle Landley. 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 Uh, also, he sold monorails to North Haverport, Ogdenville, and <laughs> I can't remember it off North, the top of my head. North, North Haverbrook. North Haverbrook. North Haverbrook. There is a chance his brain will bend. <laughs> uh, Rams linebacker Alec Ogletree wore a crying Jordan t-shirt. That was fun. But the best that I think I've ever seen crossover between whimsy and just NFL evil was Adrian Peterson being paraded through that club restaurant yes, after, yes. He, after he hurt his knee. And instead of just having a normal, like, gray hallway where he goes back in the locker room, like, they just parade you through the season ticket holders who've people and they're, in the coaches they're like, club they're like limps they're like clapping as he's going through it, was made, it made me wonder really was that absurd. a deliberate design innovation in the new stadium well, or was had... that a sort of an accidental like oh shit we didn't we didn't count on adrian peterson fucking up his leg well i know that like in the cowboy stadium they have the team go and i think this is common in a lot of stadiums now yeah they have the teams go through it, yeah. As they're going to the field, I I think it would be a design flaw that they would be like carried off on stretchers or with the help of their you know trainers when they're injured to go through the. It, it's just a very like gross kind of gladiatorial. We're paying money to see you destroy yourselves. It it makes it a little more explicit than I think uh, is necessary. Maybe it is necessary. Yeah, I had one last piece. Quick, Browns were up twenty to two on the Ravens. And I was thinking, only time that score. No, October tenth, nineteen thirty-seven. Chicago Bears twenty, Cleveland Rams two. Final score. Cleveland was the two. The two a returned uh, point after touchdown attempt. (laughs) Not in nineteen thirty-seven. I don't believe. No, I think I think in the Browns uh, Ravens game it was. We'll confirm that. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about Abby Wambach's new memoir forward and whether. It makes Stefan like her. There's never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus to hear Stefan's thoughts on Abby Wambach. For Slate's 20th anniversary, for a limited time, we're offering 30% off an annual membership. That's $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangoutplus. On Sunday in NFL Stadia, Colin Kaepernick kneeled again during the national anthem, and he was joined by players across the league who kneeled and raised their fists as the Star Spangled Banner played. Before the Sunday night game, Commissioner Roger Goodell said non-Goodellishly, I truly respect our players wanting to speak out and change their community. We don't live in a perfect society. We want them to use their voice. Megan Rapino of the U.S. national soccer team continued to kneel during the anthem as well, doing so in a game against the Netherlands, though she's not getting much support from U.S. soccer, which hasn't punished her yet, but is indicated and might do so if she continues to protest. Victor Oladipo of the Oklahoma City Thunder says NBA players will certainly join the protest movement when that season starts, while John Tortorella, the United States' coach during the World Cup of Hockey, said he would bench any player who didn't stand for the anthem. And that brings us to Major League Baseball, where nobody has protested the anthem as of yet. In an interview with USA Today, Baltimore Orioles outfielder Adam Jones 
said, we already have two strikes against us, so you might as well not kick yourself out of the game. And football, you can't kick them out. You need those players. And baseball, they don't need us. Baseball is a white man sport. What do you think is similar between baseball and hockey, Mike? I, I, I can't <laughs> imagine. And, and also women's soccer to a large degree. Well, there are a couple other things going on with hockey. Hockey. One, John Tortorella is a dick. Two, this is the <laughs> this is the World Cup. Uh, and three, there's a team called the North America team. So I don't know what mashup of the anthem that would be. But I think Adam Jones is exactly right, and he didn't exactly say that he would do it, but for the fact that it's a white man sport. But as I close my eyes and I imagine what some version of protest would be in the NBA, of course, very heavily majority, especially among American players, black. And uh, we we see what's going on in the NFL. Just the idea of someone, Adam Jones, or leaning down, kneeling down in his perfectly white starched Orioles uniform with the stirrups pulled up, it just seems so discordant. And the non-whiteness in baseball is also Hispanic players, and most of them are not American citizens, and it would be a very weird thing if they were to take part in a protest. So I think he's right. And not only is it a white man's sport, it's a southern white man's sport. And the culture of baseball, of all the sports, is in direct opposition to this sort of expression. And the opportunities to do so are different. I mean, it really is different in baseball. Adam Jones would be standing alone in center field. They wouldn't be lined up on the baseline. Um, were he to do this, he would be, and if he were to do it on the road, the potential opprobrium from the bleachers <laughs> and wherever else would be much higher. Um, and he is right to feel that the attention that would be poured on him would be different than in these other sports. And that's not to say that he shouldn't do it. And in that USA Today story, he did allude to the fact that there's a there's a not yet at the end of the piece about whether he thinks players in baseball will take some action or 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 show some public sign of uh, of solidarity with what's going on in the other sports and you hope that would happen the flip side of course is that you still have retrograde front office people like tony larusa um whose comments josh you can now pick up on and discuss i would tell a player protesting the anthem to sit inside the clubhouse larusa said you're not going to be out there representing our team and our organization by disrespecting the flag. No, sir. <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. He didn't say it three times, but I'm going to. I would not allow it. If you want to make your statement, you make it in the clubhouse, but not out there. You're not going to show it that way publicly and disrespectfully. LaRusso also said, uh, in response to Adam Jones, when he says it's a white, like elitist kind of sport, I mean, how much wronger can he be? We have tried so hard, MLB, to expand the black athlete's opportunity. We want the black athletes the to The pick- black athlete. It's like that SI story <laughs> from 1967. Or a Trump convention. <laughs> we want the black athletes to pick not basketball or football, but want them to play baseball. They should play baseball. And we're working to make that happen in the inner cities. 8% of Major League Baseball players are black. So Jeff Passan wrote uh, a screed. He excoriated in the screed, LaRusa and said, you are the person that Adam Jones is talking about. You are the white man who runs baseball and this understandable why black players would be wary of speaking out or protesting. Uh, eight, 8%. Let's go back to the 8%, Josh. 8% is basically two players 
on mm-hmm. a Major League Baseball roster. In the case of Tony La Russa's Arizona Diamondbacks, there's one African-American player on that team, Ricky Weeks. Yeah, compared to 68% in the NFL and 74% in the NBA. So I would say a couple things. First, Adam Jones did speak out in that USA right. Today piece. Um, he said he supported Kaepernick and talked about social justice. And it made me think about Dabo Sweeney, uh, the Clemson football coach, his comments you know, Colin Kaepernick should just have a press conference. He shouldn't, you know, protest on the field. This is a little bit, it's a little bit apples and oranges because Adam Jones's comments did get attention, but that was just because he said it was a white man's sport. If Adam Jones said to USA Today, I support Colin Kaepernick and didn't say anything about baseball and race specifically, nobody would have talked about it. Nobody would have cared. It's the, you know, the form of the protest is the protest. And, you know, people that don't appreciate that just are not looking and listening to what's happening and how it's different than what happened, you know, when players were just writing about it on Twitter and Instagram. People have to talk about it and look at it and notice it. And, you know, Doug Glanville also did a kind of informal survey. Doug Glanville currently works for ESPN, Black Player longtime major leaguer Pengrad. where he talked to guys like Curtis Granderson and Tori Hunter about what they feel comfortable doing and saying. And they said a lot of the same things in a slightly more understated way than what Adam Jones did. It's like, I need to grapple with the fact that I am in a sport where not a lot of people look like me. And if I say something, I don't know who exactly will have my back. And there's a in the ESPN article, the write up on it. They uh, talked about how you know th- the Mount. There was a been a you can make a Mount Rushmore of uh, great ba- black baseball players in the last uh, couple decades with Bonds and Ken Griffey Jr. And when you talk about Tory Hunter, or you talk about some of the other players. It does make it seem like these guys aren't alone. I mean, I was thinking about so what's a team that would do it? Certainly not the Cardinals. Maybe the Cubs. Joe Madden, you know, kind of forward thinking mm-hmm. guy. Who are the black players on the? Cubs. There's Jason Hayward, who, uh, I, you know, I have no idea what his thoughts are, but he's under a lot of criticism for underperforming this year. And then there is a reliever named CJ Edwards. And so, you know, position players and relievers don't even have that much to do with each other. Yeah, it does seem isolating, even if a person would want to do it. It would be going at as much as Colin Kaepernick went out of his way. It would be going out of your way by two or three degrees to do this if you were a black player. And I do think that baseball, as much as the other sports and maybe more, um, emphasizes, you know, the clubhouse and emphasizes unity. And even though with Kaepernick only, it was only outsiders who said that, uh, this would cause a distraction. I could just, I, I know that it would be lobbed at uh, a baseball team that did it. Now, in the playoffs, the teams do assemble on the uh, chalk and they do stand for the anthem in a more noticeable way. And it's a much bigger st- stage. So that would mm-hmm. take off the uh, plate, the uh, standing in the outfield, getting pelted with uh, opposing fans thing that you were talking about, Stefan. Right. A couple things. Addison Russell also yep. on the Cubs. Okay. And Mike. Jason Hayward, according to reports in April, that when he went back to St. Louis, fans uh, yelled nigger at him. That's the other thing that I think is maybe the most important is the audience and fan base 
for baseball. It's older and whiter than it is. I mean, I don't know what the demographics are for NFL fans, but certainly a different audience than for the NBA. And um, NFL fans are actually something like 70% white. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So one aspect of this that I find fascinating is that the number of people of color who play baseball in the major leagues is not declining. Um, Richard Lapchick, who does the scorecards, report cards for for sports and um, diversity, his latest one had 41.2% of players, people of color, and that Latin players had increased from 28 percent to just over 29 percent from 2014 to 2015 and it's it is kind of sad um that the number of black players has declined so precipitously since the high point of the 70s and and also about 20 percent and also just because of the history of like how hard won and how important in american history it was for major league baseball to be integrated but i can't really see or don't really believe that it's bad that there aren't as many black players in baseball. It's not bad for black people. I mean, I I think it's fine if there are more black players in the NBA and the NFL, so long as that's what, you know, the sports that those athletes want to play. It's bad for baseball, obviously, for for a huge number of reasons, but I don't think it's necessarily, you know, bad for sports or bad for society. Right. And I and I think you're right about that. What you know, it's bad for baseball because it's bad economically for baseball. It's bad for selling stuff to people. It is bad for recognizing the demographic changes in America. It is bad for reaching out to future fan bases. And, and a lot of great athletes. Who, and it's bad for that was gonna be yeah. my my last one. It's bad that you you are missing out on young athletes who might play your sport. Um, and for all of baseball's efforts, and they have been real. I mean, RBI, this the, the inner cities baseball program, other outreach efforts. These have been going on for 15, 20 years, longer possibly. And so there is some fundamental problem with the sport that I think Adam Jones and Tory Hunter and Doug Glanville could identify having grown up playing the sport. And I, of course, would agree. I mean, it's much worse societally that there are few blacks in publishing and few blacks in advertising. And I'm sounding a little like Tony LaRusso while I'm talking about blacks. But yeah, baseball is just this very small thing. And uh, for the the most part, it would be better if uh, the young child of any race would aspire to be a dentist rather than a baseball player. But that doesn't mean he can't play baseball. And when he discovers that he's very good at baseball, he has an opportunity to continue to pursue the sport. Um, Mm -hmm. And we haven't even talked about the paucity of African-Americans in major league front offices and on coaching staffs. How many black managers are there right now? One? Is it just Dusty Baker? Um, I think it might Mm -hmm. be just Dusty Baker in Washington. Um, And – if you listen to Tony LaRussa and you are a, say, a African-American coach on a minor league team or a, an African-American recent college graduate who has done sabermetrics and statistics and wants to, to enter a baseball front office, his words are not really encouraging. Dave Roberts, Dodgers. Dave Roberts, right. I think that makes two. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Saturday in Norman, Oklahoma, the Ohio State Buckeyes brushed aside the Oklahoma Sooners rather easily, winning 45-24. to Oklahoma got back in the game briefly when Joe Mixon, brief aside, uh, Joe Mixon did not get kicked off the Oklahoma team despite being caught on video punching a woman and breaking bones in her face. Uh, back, back to the topic at hand. Uh, Joe Mixon, he ran back a kickoff for a touchdown. Hooray! Here's how Gus Johnson called it live on Fox, and then you'll hear Johnson and Joel Klatt after they saw a replay. Durbin kicking it deep. Joe Mixon will start inside his own five-yard line. Mixon hopping through the hole. Watch out. He's a blazer. Can he get there? Yes, he can. Joe Mixon, 97 yards. Oklahoma getting back in this game because of this Mixon touchdown. But look at that. He actually drops the ball before he gets in the end zone. Wow. There's no question that it was out and nobody caught it. So as Klatt is alluding to there, the officials didn't review the play and didn't notice that Mixon had dropped the ball before he crossed the goal line. Also on Saturday, a Cal player let the ball go in a celebratory manner before he crossed the goal line. The officials in that game did notice and after a replay review, decided to give Cal the ball back because there hadn't been a clear recovery by the defense. This despite the fact that there was a clear recovery by the defense. Uh, anyway, this is a strange trend in football, particularly college football. And over the weekend, I went down a rabbit hole and tried to find every play I could in which a guy who was cruising into the end zone dropped the ball by mistake. I found 26, and readers have actually sent me more since publication. There are a couple of things I find interesting here. Number one, why do players do this? Just hold on to the ball. Number two, I think this is a great window in how replay has changed sports because we can now go back and look at these plays that look like touchdowns in real time to see if they still look that way and super slow motion, Stefan. Well, yeah, the replay helps except when the guy drops the ball at the four-yard line, which one of these guys did. Possibly well, mistaking the five-yard line for the goal line. So we can maybe give a him a pass. Like, there are a yeah. couple like that. Yeah, yeah. There are a few things about these videos that I love. One is the fan celebration and then the reaction when they discover that something uh, something is wrong here, that this touchdown was not actually a touchdown. I, I absolutely love that. That's my favorite part. Um, and the forensic evaluation by some people uh, some of these announcers are fans at home, I think is terrific too. There's one, and this was a uh, Mississippi state wide receiver, Fred Brown in October of 2014, uh, where he dropped the ball. This is the one Josh in his piece on slate refers to as the lowest quality video clip in the history of YouTube. <laughs> somebody, somebody filmed his TV. It's a horizontal video of someone filming their TV vertically from about 15 feet away from the couch. Yeah. Right. want to get up. bad as, it's get not as bad as everyone who's ever tried to <laughs> knock over a 7-Eleven, but it's pretty bad. Pretty bad. Uh, but the, the announcer part, though, his play-by-play -play deconstructing the drop ball is fantastic. And what he 
I think most astutely points out here is that he points out the separation between the hand and the ball in the shadow <laughs> on the field, yeah. which was a lovely bit of analysis. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of these forensics, Mike? It's interesting. I was thinking about this as I was watching uh, the Jets game and there was Phil Sims doing analysis of uh, whether <laughs> whether a guy was inbounds or out of bounds or something. And it was just so glaringly obvious that the catch was not made because the receiver was lying out of bounds and Sims seemed not to take this into account. And I don't hate Phil Sims, but a lot of people do. And then they came back from a break and then the announce and then the uh, referee said no the guy was out of bounds and Sims looks at it again and goes, "Oh yeah, you're right." And I'm thinking to myself, how is it that professional football announcers are so much worse than everyone with eyeballs who watches TV at knowing whether these things happened or not? And then I realized it. We are trained at watching football on TV. They are trained at watching football in a stadium and occasionally looking to a monitor. Who has less experience of the forensics, the uh, forensic science of football on TV than a football announcer? Mm -hmm. And so this makes it doubly frustrating. That's why the announcers so often cannot tell, even with shadow technology, whether the ball entered the end zone or not. You sound like... Phil Sims's court-appointed defense attorney and a trial about why he's such a bad Ladies announcer. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. <laughs> Sims cannot be blamed. Who among us has won Super Bowls but does not know if a guy is lying on a huge white stripe that the catch doesn't count? <laughs> I, oh my God. <laughs> I'd like to talk about the why. Josh, before the show, we were talking about how this would make a great sports science segment. Because there is something psychological that must happen when you are so excited about what is going to occur. I'm going to score a touchdown and everybody is going to go bullshit and crazy and the fans are going to be screaming and I'm a hero. You mean apeshit. Did I say bullshit? <laughs> yeah. You can go I'm going to go bullshit apeshit. I yeah. like bullshit. I'm sticking with my bullshit. Um So th I think there's something chemically in the human body <laughs> that occurs at a moment of celebration. Touchdownium, yeah. yeah. That's number one for me. And number two is the, the, the idea that there's some sort of spatial issue going on. Perceptual. Depth perception. I am sprinting toward this line and I'm going to drop the ball when I cross the line and my brain just doesn't, isn't able to determine exactly the moment when I drop cross the line. Of course, you don't need to drop it as soon as you cross the line. Yeah, that's the weird, that's the weird part of it. So... As I was Googling around trying to find these plays, and there's not one generally accepted term for it, maybe Mike can come up with one by the end of the segment, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the the two things that come up when you search for a guy drops ball before end zone are videos of a guy dropping ball before in, the end zone and fans on message boards kind of beating their chest about how if they were the coach, this would never happen and saying – you know, why do you, why do you have to do that? It's so dumb. It, you know, how dare you? You're dis a disgrace and this is the dumbest thing ever. All of which is kind of true. I'm just saying it in like kind of a dumb guy tone of voice. But it's my hard to coach out of it. Like we're going to drill for this. <laughs> Guys, last 5 minutes of practice. <laughs> well, the the part that I think is so interesting and weird is there are certain kinds of celebrations like Elmo Wright did an end zone dance. Then everyone started dancing in the end zone. You know, the spike, other, mm -hmm. other people start to spike after the first one. Obviously, when certain people celebrate in a certain way, people do the dab, et cetera. Trend. But 
you would think that this is the kind of thing where when somebody does it once, then fewer people would do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the more people do it, the fewer people should do it. It's you almost like it's, like it's like it's like a competition to see how close to the goal line you can drop the ball in celebration. I think it's I think it's uh, a consequence of video and that now that almost every game is on TV and there are such good angles, right. this was probably happening a ton in the uh, 70s and 80s. I bet Billy White Shoes Johnson more than once fumbled the ball. This doesn't happen that much in the pros or though, although, I mean, you you have found a lot of these college examples. There are so many more college games. Are there did, did Dwayne Bowe did it? What are the pro examples? Trendon Holiday, the yeah. punt returner, did it. Danny Trevathan, a linebacker, ran back an interception and dropped the ball. Clearly, there the Broncos a, problem. a linebacker. They, there are he a few just that want the ball. <laughs> there are a few that I haven't put in the piece yet because people emailed them to me. Sterling Sharp of the Packers in a snow game didn't know where the end zone was and just started running nice. sideways. Uh, Jerry Rice did it against the Saints in '89. Um, and then there were there was what, like a Jets player in a preseason game spiked the ball at the five yard line. So there are a bunch in the pros as well. My question for you, Stefan, is about the kind of forensicization mm-hmm. and the CSIization of football games. And these are touchdowns to us. Most of these examples, they're touchdowns to us. In real time, they're touchdowns to the announcers in real time. They're touchdowns to the players in real time. And then maybe if you slow it down to the slowest possible frame rate, all of a sudden they don't look like touchdowns. Is that a success of the replay system or is it a failure in your in your view? It's sort of the same argument for replay generally, right? I mean, do we want the precision of knowing what this is football? And in football, there's this expectation that everything can be measured in this way, that we need utter precision. The moment the nose of the bowl passes the imaginary plane above the goal line determines whether it Which is a touchdown infinitely. or not. Extends infinitely. <laughs> and in most of these as, cases – As does your shame. <laughs> and in most of these cases, as we've noted repeatedly, the players are very close to the goal line and it's very and moving difficult. moving very fast. It's very difficult to tell. Mm-hmm. Like when exactly does the – pigskin like loosen from their grip i mean it's very hard to tell right but carrying a football they don't want to be carrying but there is a there is a judgment in this particular transgression and the judgment is just hold on to the ball idiot before (laughs) until you get into the end zone which is different from did the running back you know, poke the nose of the ball over the goal line in a stack of 300 pound guys. Well, there's so many of these video compilations on YouTube where it's the celebrating too early fail compilation and they have millions and millions (laughs) of views. And there is a kind of just very simple, like tortoise in the hair fable aspect to it and it's like you show mike i'm sure shows his kids these videos every night and Mm -hmm. like don't be like don't be like Lindsay jacob ellis and don't be like the guy who like stands up on his bike and then the other side emmett (laughs) emmett in the olympics she tweaked her method don't tweak your method (laughs) do you remember when Lindsay jacob ellis tweaked her method i I was there yes yeah 
Anyway, the guy was, I I forgot it was announcing. He was just yelling over and over. She tweaked her method. She filleted her dinosaur. It could have been a made up phrase. I just think we as sports fans revel in whenever we see someone and everyone on the field is doing things we could never do. And when they do something that we all could do, we jump on it. Oh my God. Right. What a jackass. That is the the most primal fan response. And this is the most primal example of that. But here's the back half of, of this point. In all of those videos, when somebody, you know, stands up on their bike or eases up at the finish line or tweaks their method, the comeuppance is that somebody who's trying really hard um, ends up finishing first because they've, you know, finished the race. In this case, except for very rare examples, like the Oregon guy who ran the ball back all the way 100 yards after the Utah receiver dropped it. There's there's nobody nobody even notices the ball just sits there on the field. Yeah. There's nobody who's like playing till the end of the whistle. That like so what is the lesson that we're that we're learning there? Well, first of all, there usually isn't a whistle, right? In like what two of the thirty, <laughs> the refs got it right. But um, everyone is wrong is the lesson. And also, right, there's no justice because half the time, what we see is the worst rule in football, the most illogical rule. Half the time, the ball, well, sometimes it just sits there. But a bunch of the time, the ball goes out on the one, team gets the ball and they usually punch it in. But then if it skirts six inches and it goes out of the back of the end zone, other team gets it on a touchback. Mike, we need rules. We need rules. We need arbitrary rules. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Last month in National Geographic, Andrew Bisharat wrote an article with the headline, Why Are So Many Base Jumpers Dying? As Bisharat writes, BASE is an acronym standing for the types of objects participants may leap from, buildings, antennas, bridges, aka spans, and the earth itself in the form of cliffs or promontories. At the time he wrote the story, 31 people had died while base jumping in 2016, 20 of them while wearing wingsuits. A jumper in a wingsuit looks kind of like a flying squirrel. It's remarkable to watch someone swoop through the air while wearing one of these devices. Uh, It becomes stiff as it fills with air on a flyer's descent to Earth. Joining us now is Steph Davis, who is the author of the book Learning to Fly, an uncommon memoir of human flight, unexpected love, and one amazing dog. I can declare unequivocally, well, first of all, the dog seems amazing, but also that she is the biggest badass we've ever had on this show. She specializes <laughs> in free solo rock climbing, which are climbs done without harnesses or protective equipment. She's also a base jumper and a wingsuit flyer and has continued to jump after her husband died in a wingsuit accident in 2013. Steph, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course. And you were quoted pretty extensively in that article in National Geographic on, you know, as I said, the headline, Why Are So Many Base Jumpers Dying? Um, what did you think of that piece? Well, Andrew is a very dear friend of mine. So I, of course, um, have a huge amount of respect for his writing, his researching, and just his perspective on things. I do think the headline was a little 
sensational. And I struggled with that a little bit. And I had to go away and think about it because my reaction was, why are there so many articles about base jumpers dying was kind of the question I had to ask myself afterwards. And it was a good question. You know, it kind of made me sit down and think about that and ask myself, is this even a legitimate topic? Why are we seeing so many stories like this recently? And kind of had some interesting conclusions when I sat down with it for a little while. And what were those conclusions? Well, my conclusions were that, first of all, people are just absolutely fascinated by human flight. And they have been since, I'm sure you know the myth of Icarus and Daedalus. They made the wings out of the feathers and the wax, and the sun was too excited, and he flew close to the sun, and the the wings melted, and he fell in the ocean, and the father flew out to safety. I mean, there's an ocean named after Icarus, and there's an island named after him, and you know, everybody still knows that story from thousands and thousands of years ago. And there's just something so captivating, I think, to our minds about human flight that we're intrigued by it, we're scared by it because people aren't really built to fly. And I think that manifests in just being really interested in it. So I think a lot of times people are looking for a hook and an easy hook is, oh, this is so dangerous. And I think that's one reason we're seeing things like that in the media. Journalistically, I totally understand the impulse. Um, It it looks sort of like an Everest kind of story. More people Mm -hmm. are doing it. It's become more accessible. And we get to the point where more laymen, people that aren't qualified to handle this kind of of an extreme uh, activity, end up dying. And that is notable. Um, a lot of people have died doing this, and a lot of your friends have died doing this. I mean, so from a journalist perspective, I totally understand the impulse to write about it and explain it because it does combine those two qualities of something so intense and for people that don't do it, almost inexplicable with the notion of risk and tangible statistics. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting about these numbers is that they are a little misleading because what we're hearing now is we're hearing the numbers of base-related deaths have increased, but we actually do not know how many people base jump. And so it is impossible for us to make any kind of conclusion about rates since we have no idea what our starting group is. The Swiss are really good with um, with numbers and trying to do research. And there is a one place, Lauterbrunnen Valley in Switzerland, which is a big base jumping destination. And so it's a very small valley, and they are able to do a little more counting. So last year, the local search and rescue doctor reported that the fatality rate from base jumping has actually decreased in Lauterbrunnen, and the number of jumpers has grown and they're estimating that 15,000 to 20,000 base jumps are made per year in Lauterbrunnen. And this is one very small valley of all the many, many base jumping sites that are throughout the whole world. So, you know, again, it's interesting to talk about these things, but when you really back it up, you know, as with many things we talk about based on numbers, 
the numbers aren't really telling us what they seem to be telling us at first glance. Well, let, me, let me ask you this. You, you spent years training people. You, you run a business or you have run a business training people to do this kind of activity. I mean, what have you seen over the last decade in terms of the kinds of people that want to do something like base jumping? Base jumping has become a lot more popular, especially in the last five years. And I think that outdoor sports in general have become more popular in the last five years. I think there's a lot more media focus on them, you know, just evidenced by the fact that we're talking about it right now. And I think that when you get more people coming to the sport, you just have more numbers. You know, there's going to be more of everything, including the accidents that happen. But I also think that I have seen in the last five years, the attitudes have changed because of the POV cameras and the social media. And so when I first started base jumping wingsuits, you know, it was pretty intense and a big deal, just the fact that we were doing it at all. And people weren't having goals <laughs> so much as to, you know, have a good time, be safe, and maybe very gradual types of personal progression goals. Now with the POV cameras, we're seeing people shooting every time they fly and there's become this desire to fly closer and closer and closer to stuff and then produce footage afterwards and then post that up. So people that are coming into the sport now think that that's what you do when you fly wingsuits every single time you fly them. And this has to change a little bit in the sport, this kind of unusual perspective that has developed because of seeing things on social media. How many people base jump, would you say? We don't know. We can't figure that out. It's an interesting question. A lot of us are always asking. We feel like if we went to base manufacturers, if all mm -hmm. of them would give their data about exactly what they've sold every year, that might tell us. But then what happens is you have a lot of manufacturers. They're all competitors of each other. They don't really want to divulge that information. And so we actually don't know. Do you have any idea? Is it, a, is it a million? I literally have no idea, but I think a hmm. million would be pretty high. Okay, so here is my point. There are a million, it's like 1,086,000 as of the last statistics, high school football players. And last year, 15 high school football players in the United States died. And uh, I don't know, I did 12 interviews about this. There were all these stories about the spate of deaths among high school football players. So that's 12 or 15 out of a million in this uh, National Geographic article, which was published the date was August 30th, they talk about the 31 base jumper deaths. So the idea of uh, that the number is not that high or we don't know a baseline, I mean, you're right, there's some ambiguity, but it, to me, uh, seems pretty high, seems pretty high based against other sports where we are telling ourselves there is a really high injury and fatality rate. Nobody's ever going to tell you that it's safe to jump off a cliff. It is definitely not. <laughs> um, and no one's ever going to tell you that you're going to live forever, no matter what you do. Again, you know, the numbers well, game is funny. I started playing with numbers because I was asking myself these same questions. And I just poked around on the internet. And I found out that 140 people died in national parks in 2015, mostly from drowning I found that 38,300 people died in car crashes, most of which were preventable because they weren't wearing seatbelts or they were intoxicated. 
I find out that 591,699 people died from cancer, 75,578 died from diabetes, 614, 348,000 died from heart disease. In 2015, two people in the U.S. died from wingsuit base jumping. So it's just really interesting that the wingsuit deaths are something that's in the headlines. Do you really think that wingsuit jumping is comparable to diabetes, cancer, or a national park? It just seems to me I can make the case that, look, it's risky to play Russian roulette and it's risky to eat fish that has not been filleted. It's just that the degrees of risk are exponentially different. And you quoted a bunch of statistics, which make me makes me wonder if you look at risk as just an either or binary Or, I mean, can you appreciate that there are some activities that are so much riskier than others, even though there is some risk in everything? Well, I think what's interesting is the way that the human brain thinks about risk. I heard a really fascinating podcast on Radio West, an interview with Shankar Vedantam, and he's the host of the Hidden Brain podcast. He's the author of the Hidden Brain podcast. And he had some amazing remarks that really hit home to me because he said that people's brains have adapted to risks that were in the environment for thousands of years. So we have these deep fears of predators and heights because that's kind of hardwired into the brain. But the threats that we face in the modern world aren't tied to those things anymore. So the main thing that's killing Americans now is heart attacks, strokes, cancer, and diabetes His point was that a lot of these are tied to unhealthy lifestyles, the type of food we eat, whether we exercise or not, smoking, but our minds really fixate on things that are tied to these ancient risks. So we'll get very, very nervous about anything related to predators or heights, but at the same time, we'll be sitting in a restaurant with this huge plate of food, you know, eating (laughs) French fries and And that's actually the thing that's going to kill you. So I I was really intrigued listening to that podcast because it answered some of these questions for me, which I've always felt very confused about. I hate to be a cliche, but I was eating French fries last night and I'm afraid of heights. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that podcast was fascinating. I mean, the examples he gave really hit home for me. So how do you think about um, risk? in your own life, just reading up on you, watching the videos that you've made, the climbs and the jumps, it's really amazing and remarkable and not anything I could imagine doing myself. How how do you decide what are risks that are acceptable to you and which are not? I've been climbing in the mountains for 25 years, and I've been base jumping for almost 10 years now. And I spend the majority of my time doing risk assessment. And because I've been doing it for so long, I think I have a very analytical perspective about it. And I do realize that, you know, everything we do is a choice. So if you truly, truly, truly think it's absolutely unacceptable to ever be eaten by a shark, then you should never go in the ocean ever. (laughs) But um, we can't predict everything. We really don't know what is going to be the end of our life. And so I think the best we can do is to mitigate risk as much as possible and make decisions about what we care about in life and pursue those things. And so that's what I do. I love being in the mountains. 
I love being active. I love being in high places. I love being very self-sufficient. So, you know, these are the things I pursue and I understand there's danger attached to them, but I, I work very hard to mitigate the risk in the way I do these things by preparation, by decision-making and just by listening to my intuition as well, as much as possible. You practice sports that ensure exposure to fear regardless of how you compartmentalize it or in this remarkable way are able to accept it and get beyond it. And also grief, you know, as I mentioned before, and, and you've talked about in TED Talks and write in your memoir, you've lost a lot of people that are close to you, including your husband. And even after your husband's death in, in a wingsuit jump, which, and you can tell the story, but you, you, you were together, you went first, he jumped after you, and you realized instantly when he didn't follow you to the ground, what had happened. How did you get beyond that and continue to do what you do and accept that that kind of grief is something that I need to deal with and get back to the life I want to live? The thing about loss is you don't know how you're going to react to it until it happens to you. So I think Everybody out there has experienced a massive loss or they're going to. And, um, you know, we all have to explore that territory when it comes to us. The difficult thing about Mario's death was that I never expected it to happen because he was so experienced. He was so safe. He was always very um, conscious of the fact that there are dangers in everything we do, but I never expected to lose him. And yet, how did you sort of process getting back to the top of a mountain? I, I really had the rug pulled out from under me in that experience and just had to, you know, live with it for a while and, and really look within and say, what am I going to do with my life? Where do I go from here? Because the life I thought I had is now gone. And, you know, what does that mean? And over time, I realized that we keep going. When we lose things, when tragedies happen to us, you know, that's humanity. We're resilient and we keep going. And then we have a choice about how we keep going. You know, we can keep going in a sad way, in a, in a loss mentality, or we can say, you know what, it's an amazing world and I'm still here and I'm thankful for everything that happened and I want to keep living. And that was the choice I made. Do you think your TED Talks and your book and uh, just interviews like this, your perspective, have uh, influenced other people to take up base jumping? I get a lot of letters from people. They like the things I do more based on the mentality of wanting to be free, wanting to live simply. Um, sometimes that makes people want to start climbing. Sometimes it makes people want to downsize their life. Sometimes it makes them want to start skydiving. Sometimes it makes them want to go live in an RV and travel the world. And it's really amazing to me to get that kind of feedback from people. But I, I think, you know, I think we all know what we really want to do. And sometimes you just kind of hear the right thing at the right time from somebody that just gives you that little push to go forward. So I, I know I've had that from people I've heard. And, and I feel like sometimes I serve that purpose for others. Well, that's what I find so troubling. If I had evidence, I've heard what you said, and I would normally just say, look, if this is what you want to do, it's your, it's your choice. 
But to influence other people with the idea that base jumping is pretty similar to going in the ocean because there are sharks in the ocean. And you talked about all the risk assessment you did, but then you cited a bunch of statistics that indicate to me that you don't understand that risk isn't a binary. It's on a continuum. And you talk about how safe, and it's tragic, my heart goes out to you, that your husband died, how safe he was, and yet he died. And that could be an outlier, except it keeps happening. Look, all I'm saying is if I had a young cousin who said I was getting into base jumping, knowing what I know, I would beg him not to. And I think that would be great. But everybody's got to make, got to make their own choices in life. I wanted to ask you about the pressure to earn a living for a lot of outdoor sports professionals like yourself. One of your sponsors, Cliff Bar, a few years ago dropped you and others because they perceived that the risks were too great and that the perception that was being disseminated to the public by the kinds of activities that you do are too extreme. What's the balance? And you see this in other sports too, in surfing and every sport basically where someone can make a video now and where sponsors often pressure athletes to do more daring things, skiing, surfing, climbing. What what do you think the balance is there? And how do you, as someone who is so far out on the continuum of ability, how do you sort of parse that and what you are willing to do and what you think other athletes should be willing to do? Everybody's different in how they work as a sponsored athlete. I've been working with brands for 20 years now, and so I've seen a lot of evolution in athlete relationships in the outdoor community. Over time, I've realized that the most important thing is just to be true to yourself. So if you're always chasing something and trying to hold this position of being, you know, the best or the fastest or the most dangerous or something, you know, that's just not very sustainable. And so that's not really something that I've tried to, I guess, put in my wheelhouse. But I feel really fortunate at this point in my career to be working with excellent companies and also to have started my own business. And through the combination of all those things, Again, the most important thing is just to be myself and put out there what I do and how I do it. And if that resonates with people, it's great. So, Steph, I'm interested in how you think about setting new goals for yourself. And is there anything that you want to accomplish that you haven't accomplished yet? My goals are always about a way of living. And that has been the path I have followed for all these years. And sometimes along the way, I get particularly inspired by either a certain climb or a certain place I'd like to go or a certain experience I'd like to have. And typically, you know, I, I get to pursue those things. But again, it's, it's much bigger than that. It's, it's more of a concept of living a free life, a simple life, a happy life, not causing too much trouble on the planet, you know, not making a huge footprint. It's that's kind of my overriding goal. What does it feel like to jump off of a cliff wearing a squirrel suit? Human flight is, you know, it's it's intrigued people for thousands of years for a reason. It's it's a really indescribable experience just to have the ability to go up to a high place and launch into the air and 
and to have wings and feel them fill up with air and to be able to fly around and see the earth like a bird. It's a experience that once you've tasted it, you always want to go back. I think there's a famous Leonardo da Vinci quote to that effect that, that once a human has tasted flight, um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no forgetting it. Steph Davis is the author of the book, Learning to Fly, an Uncommon Memoir of Human Flight, Unexpected Love, and One Amazing Dog. You can look at her website, stephdavis.co, and also follow her on Twitter at hi Steph. That's H-I-G-H. She's also made me think anew about French fries. Uh, Steph Davis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steph. Thanks. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Now it is time for After Balls and W.P. Kinsella the author of Shoeless Joe, which uh, Field of Dreams, the movie was based on, died recently. Was it over the weekend, Stephen? It was uh, assisted suicide. He was 81 years old. Assisted suicide. I yeah, didn't know in that. In Canada. So he was, he, lived. he was a Scrabble player. He was. He uh, wrote more than 30 books, but he also, according to the New York Times obituary, after he was in a car accident in 1997, he sort of lost his will to write and turned to playing Scrabble on the internet. But what the Times neglected to mention was that starting in 1998, he became a tournament Scrabble player. He played in 121 tournaments between 1998 and last October. And in his next to last tournament, he won Division Three of a big tournament in Calgary. He went 17-4. and four. He was a really nice guy. I met him at a couple national championships. He was a really lovely guy. I met him at a couple national championships. He said nice things about Word Freak, which was very kind of him, given that he's Bill Kinsella, and I'm not. Mike, what is your Kinsella? We have talked about and quoted on this show the idea of the good face, the money ball, where they're quoting the scouts and they say, oh, this guy just has the good face. It's illogical. But I realize that when it comes to me and NFL quarterbacks, I have a version of the good face and it is the good name. And there are just some quarterbacks that I will never believe can be good because they have ridiculous names. Not even ridiculous. It it struck me as I was watching the Jacksonville Jaguars and Blake Bortles was failing to get his team down the field. Blake Bortles had a good year last year, but his name is Blake Bortles. And there's no way that a guy named Blake Bortles can ever be a huge success in the NFL. I mean, there's something about the the you know, it's very Jerry Lewis-y. Um, and, and the double B is definitely not good. And it's just fun to say, oh yeah, Jacksonville, I guess I was sleeping on them. What with their quarterback, Blake Bortles, but there's some names that if you put in the Blake Bortles spot, totally scan no matter what. And I was trying to analyze if I was just justifying if this was an ad hoc justification, but I think not. I mean, Roger Staubach and Terry Bradshaw. Those are football quarterback names. I don't know if they're going to be great. I don't know if Dan Fouts or Johnny Unitas or Bart Starr or Ken Stabler. These are great leader names. These are not names that you could automatically dismiss. Now, there are some Hall of Fame quarterbacks who don't have the great names. I think they've had to overcome it. Among them, Bob Greasy. 
And I think I can prove this point by the fact that Brian Greasy, very similar to Bob Greasy, was the kind of quarterback that you could Blake Bortles. Yeah, they're going to have a good year this year. What with Brian Greasy behind center. There are also similarly some failure quarterbacks who have the good name. I think Kyle Orton's a good name. And there are some pretty good quarterbacks who have the bad name. I don't think Joe Flacco's a good name. I think Joe Namath's a good name. I don't think Joe Flacco's a good name. I was wondering to myself, am I discriminating against, say, ethnic types? Gino Oriema. Eh, I think you could go either way with that. Vinny Testaverde. I don't think I was uh, discriminating. But then I got to the one that confounds everything. And I'd like you guys to weigh in if this is a good name or a bad name. Joe Montana. Because he was so good, we think of him as this mythical figure, and maybe it's a uh, Paul Bunyan-esque. But really, if Joe Montana were bad, wouldn't we be saying things like, oh, Jesus, who's he putting under center? Joe Montana? And the way I proved to myself that Joe Montana was actually a bad name is I concocted a similar name, very linguistically, stylistically similar, Bob Wyoming. Ladies and gentlemen, starting for your San Francisco 49ers, it's Bob Wyoming. So I don't think Joe Montana was a good name. I think Joe, in front of anything, has the potential to go either way. I think that's That's right. That's it could be like the average Joe or the, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What that's about true. Ryan Leaf? I was thinking of Ryan Leaf, and that's, a, that's an either way. And I think that but for their success, Eli Manning and Peyton Manning, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a newness to their names that doesn't inspire confidence, like the Dans and the Joes. Now, Warren Moon is another interesting case, too. But I think Warren Moon has – Warren Moon is a little like Cleo Lemon. Aren't those names <laughs> is kind of similar? One was good, one was bad. Y.A. Tittle is in the Hall of Fame, just for the record. <laughs> yes, he is. And so is Brett Farver. So is Brett Favre. Brett Favre, good name. Brett Favre, bad name. Stefan, what is your Kinsella? Well, the Washington Post newspaper on Saturday published a letter to the editor regarding an article about an increase in emergency room visits from youth soccer injuries, and I will read it in full. Teaching soccer, playing children better techniques, restricting heading for younger children, and tensing neck muscles while heading the ball might all be strategies for reducing injuries. However, they are not what children are thinking about on the field. What is missing is a discussion of helmets. Children playing football wear helmets, shoulder pads, and other protection. What do soccer players wear? Shin guards! When my children played soccer, there were black eyes and broken fingers, cuts, scrapes, and twisted ankles. I guess we were lucky because concussions can have significant consequences. Children wear helmets to play football and baseball, bike and ski, to name just a few activities. It is past time to wear helmets for soccer. Children need to have that protection, and parents should demand it. Sherry Deck, Rockville, Maryland. All right, if you're like me, when you hear helmet, as in football helmet, baseball helmet, biking helmet, skiing helmet, you think helmet, a big round hard thing that covers the skull. Now, it's possible that Sherry Deck of Rockville, Maryland meant headgear, not helmets. You know, those headbands and full skull coverings made of soft material purported to displace some of the impact from a blow to the head, not protect the skull from fracture, as helmets in those other sports are designed to do and really only do. Some school districts have actually mandated headgear in youth soccer. Some older players and pros who have suffered concussions wear them, including U.S. Women's National Team member and hang-up-and-listen guest Allie Krieger. But there's no conclusive scientific evidence that headgear does, in fact, protect soccer players from concussions. And there are 
reasons to think headgear is a bad idea, especially for adolescent and pre-adolescent children, because it makes the head heavier, which reduces responsiveness and increases the risk of whiplash, especially among girls. And headgear can give athletes a false sense of security, which may increase risk-taking. But I'm going to choose to believe that when Sherry Deck of Rockville, Maryland said helmets, she meant helmets. Now, it's easy to make fun of the idea of full-blown helmets in soccer or to wonder if it wasn't just some extremely well-placed trolling because the whole letter is awesome from the exclamation point after shin guards to the reference to those halcyon concussion-free days of black eyes and twisted ankles. Aside, I'm pretty sure I was concussed a couple of times in high school circa 1980, once when I went headfirst into the hockey boards, another when I was punched in the face by a goalkeeper trying to clear a ball. There were no concussions then because coaches and parents didn't know from concussions. So helmets and soccer, the more I think about it, absolutely. They really could change the game for the better, Josh. Given how little success the U.S. men have had in international soccer, helmets would really serve to change the game and make it more American. We might even want to think about merging it in some way with Europe's other traditional game, rugby maybe combine some aspects of the two sports. We could, and I'm just spitballing here, Josh, maybe reduce the kicking part of soccer a little bit, let players carry the ball once in a while. The helmets would allow for more direct contact, which would be good. Fans would like it. Players like physicality. So instead of just kicking, maybe players could carry the ball. I don't know. Or maybe even throw it, Josh. I think throwing it would really add a new dimension to soccer. The new game would definitely be safer because helmets would ensure that it would be safer. So thank you, Sherry Deck of Rockville, Maryland, and the Washington Post employee who decided to publish Sherry's letter. I think your idea to add helmets to soccer really could be a game changer. Josh, what's your Kinsella? I'm going to do a Culture Fest style endorsement. And what I'm endorsing is the Twitterer Trill Bollins, who has been turning ESPN sports business guy Darren Ravel's tweets into popular songs from my childhood. Have you either of you guys heard these? No, no, but it's good fodder. This is old. Um, most of these are from May, uh, but they're still great and need to be celebrated. So here is, <laughs> I'm already laughing. Here is the first one. Lada noise over LeBron one billion number on lifetime So that <laughs> thoughts, Mike. Uh, it makes me want to move under the bridge. <laughs> All right, let's hear another one. That I think might be my favorite. What song was that? That's, that's Lake of Fire from no. uh, their Nirvana Unplugged in New York Meat, Meat Puppets oh, okay. cover. Uh, there, there's kind of a grunge thing happening in these next couple. All right. Uh, let's play one more. Yeah. 
I'm going hungry. <laughs> what's the What's the name of that song, Mike? Temple of the Dog, Hunger Strike. There we that go. Was from, uh, th- that was from a grunge supergroup. I could just imagine Ravel <laughs> uniting with, I don't know, who's his opposite number on Fox Sports as a super, super <laughs> tweeting group. So Ravel replied to, <laughs> to that song. Uh, he sent a, a short message to Trill Bollins. And here is Trill Bollins singing Darren Ravel's reply. That, of course, being Sp- Spoon Man by Soundgarden. All right. And get your lighters out. We've got one more uh, tweet to listen to. Here's here's our final Trill Ballins, Darren Ravel collaboration. Artificial Supply with self brooms, mops, and squeegees in large quantity. <laughs> do, you, do you think he just has a list of songs, and no matter what the tweet is, he's pairing that song to that tweet, no matter what? Uh, Trill Bollins is a, a pseudonym, strangely. It's not his real name, his or her real name. I think a, I think a man. It is reminiscent. And Mike, you may remember Hart Seeley and Tom Pyre's book, Oh Holy Cow, which mm-hmm. they uh, they took the uh, the play by play or color commentary of Phil Rizzuto on Yankees broadcasts and set it to verse. It's a modern day version of that. I think my head shrinks a little in this indoor stadium. I am the mic is getting bigger, and I have to tighten it. That was Alienation by Phil Rizzuto. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hangup and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer this week is Dan Bloom. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.